This is Knight Errant Hal Lewis from the beautiful Finger Lakes region in upstate New York, and you're listening to Kerry Parker's Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and today we have episode 228 for July 12th, 2021. Hey, one quick note before I get into the regular stuff. Um, If you have tried to subscribe to my newsletter in the past, and I'll talk to you today about why you might want to do that, I got some feedback from uh, one of my listeners saying they had trouble getting the confirm to to happen. Uh, I think when the GDPR thing rolled around, I had a guy who was originally setting up my newsletter stuff, you know, go full GDPR (laughs) and make sure like everything's double confirmed. But it's caused a lot of problems. I think the confirmation emails were going to spam folders. So people would sign up and then nothing would happen. And uh, at least this one listener basically said that when she tried to click the confirm, it didn't even work. So I have backed off on that. And now it's just a simple one click. You sign up like normal. You say you want to join and you join. You'll get a confirmation email, which will give you the opportunity to back out if you made a mistake. But that email will also come with the bonuses that you get for signing up, which is the top five security tips and the first chapter of the book. Actually, it's the first chapter and the preface. So anyway, if you've tried in the past and had trouble getting signed up for the newsletter, give it another shot. So we've got a back-to-back news show for you, and uh, that gets me back in line with uh, the the newsletter and blog posts, uh, which I like to be in sync. So going forward, this is what the plan is. We'll see how it works. So I've got more news for you. There was plenty of stuff to cover. So last week in one of the articles, uh, I mentioned calculating the hash of downloaded software, and I kind of glossed over that, and (laughs) I'm actually still going to not get into it deeply here. But I'm going to talk a little bit more about that here today, and it prompted me to write a blog article about how to safely download software. Um, So we'll start with a little bit of that, and then we're going to get into some news. Um, We're going to talk about a popular password manager that really screwed up, uh, and luckily there's an easy fix. We're going to talk about a really interesting thing I saw a while ago, but I've seen several articles on this now that you probably haven't seen, uh, about iPhone thieves in Brazil and why they're stealing phones, uh, and it's not to sell the phones. Google has come out and said that they're going to delay the deployment of the Flock technology that we've talked on this show about before uh, at length uh, until 2023. There's an interesting article I read about why that might be beyond the obvious. Next up, a really disturbing thing that came up during congressional testimony from a Microsoft executive about how routine it's become for law enforcement and intelligence agencies to get data on their users and then gag order them into not being able to talk about it. And then another kind of bombshell article about how an old phone network encryption standard appears to have been deliberately weakened for semi-political reasons. And while it happened a long time ago, it actually still could be affecting us today. And it brings up some important issues. So I wanted to go over that article. And then we'll finish up with some longer articles about stuff we touched on last week that's still going on uh, this week. And that would be the print nightmare. The official patch came out and it didn't do the job. Uh, So, and also this article I'm going to read about this has some really interesting background about how this is all played out. And then finally, this Casilla ransomware attack that has affected over 1,500 businesses and is being billed as perhaps the biggest ransomware attack ever. We talked about it briefly in the new show from last week, and I've got plenty of updates for you this week. And then for the tip of the week, I'm going to go through some rather specific tips on what you can do to avoid being a ransomware victim. And even a little bonus tip for you with the hurricane season coming up, 
I'll talk to you briefly about how you can prepare for a power outage. All right, let's get to it. Okay, last week we talked about how if you really want to verify something that you've downloaded from the internet, that what you've downloaded is exactly what you're supposed to have downloaded, that you fingerprint that file. You create a cryptographic hash of that file. But it's not as easy as it should be. And one of the reasons it's not as easy as it should be is, frankly, most of us shouldn't have to be doing this because, uh, as I'm going to recommend here, you really should be getting your apps from app stores these days. Uh, And I know there's a lot of political stuff with that and monopolies and monopsities. (laughs) There's lots of political and financial or economic nuances to the use of app stores by Apple and Google and Microsoft. However, from a strictly security standpoint, they are a good thing. So as long as you're downloading your operating system and your operating system updates and your applications directly from an official app store, you don't have to worry about calculating hashes and fingerprints. And that's kind of what these frameworks are for. So these app stores are not perfect. I'm not saying they're 100% secure. Nothing is 100% secure, but they do vet these apps. Now, a lot of them are just automated systems that are vetting them, but that's still way better than no vetting at all. And here's the other clincher. These frameworks have ways to automatically update those apps when there's a hot bug that needs to be fixed or actually revoke them entirely. So again, from a security standpoint, getting all your software through these app stores, the official app stores from Apple, Google, and Microsoft is the best way to go. Now, there are still software apps out there that don't participate in those app stores that you still have to download separately. And in those cases, you should absolutely, where possible, Find the cryptographic hash associated with that downloaded file and verify that it matches the one you actually downloaded. Now, for that to even have a prayer of working and being secure, you always have to go to the source, the original manufacturer of that software. Do not go to, you know, back in the day, things like Softwarepedia or Download.com or SourceForge. There were a lot of places that kind of aggregated downloads specifically for PC, like, device drivers. I would avoid those at all costs today. They often force you to download other crap you don't want. Adware, bloatware. Remember the old ass.com toolbars and crap like that? Well, they're just modern versions of those. You do not want to go that route if you can absolutely help it. Always go to the source. And, And finding the source is not easy. Again, this is just reinforcing why app stores are better. Uh, but if you just do a Google search on one of these apps, you can't guarantee that the top hit is going to be the right one. A lot of those top hits are sponsored. And if I was a bad guy, yeah, I'd like to trick you into downloading my version of that instead of the real version. And then when you talk about IoT devices, those little fancy gadgets and gizmos that we're buying today that connect to the internet, you know, toasters, light bulbs, thermostats, televisions, refrigerators, you name it. Everything wants to connect to the internet now. Those are really bad. Now, I wrote a whole article on this, and I recommend you just go check it out. If you're a newsletter subscriber, you already have it in your inbox right now. But it's also a blog article. They usually line up. Not always. Usually they do. So you could kind of get past issues of the newsletter, sort of, by looking through the blog entries. Anyway, um, I've just wrote an article on this, and there's a lot of info there. But uh, just real quick, like for IoT devices, first of all, make sure that if you're going to buy one, that whatever you buy is updatable. If it's not updatable, move on. It's got to have some way to check what version of software is on it, and you've got to be able to update it, hopefully automatically, but at least manually. Also, for any devices you have currently in your home that are connected to your home network, 
find out what version they're running. And if you can't even find that out, and if you can't update it, I would seriously think about replacing it. Um, if that device is no longer supported, like we found out with the Western Digital MyBook Live fiasco that we talked about last week, then replace it. Get rid of it. It's a ticking time bomb. Also, I would put these IoT devices on your guest network whenever possible. Almost all modern Wi-Fi routers have the ability to turn on a guest network, which is a separate segregated network that you can put untrusted things. Now, that was normally meant for people that visit your home. They say, hey, what's your Wi-Fi password? Great. Yeah, it's good for that, too. Use it and, and definitely use it for that purpose. But I would also put your IoT devices on there, at least all the ones that you can. Some of them, unfortunately, require for you to control or configure them that your smartphone or your computer is connected to the same network. Uh, but sometimes that's only for configuration. Once it's up and running, a lot of times they'll just connect directly to the Internet, which in which case you can just put it directly on your guest network and forget about it. That segregates these devices, these things that are cheap and where security is usually a last resort or last thing they think about when they're implementing these things. And at least that means that they, if these things are somehow compromised, that they can't get to your more juicy stuff. They can't get to your phone or your computer. Also, I would register all of these devices. I know that's going to get you a lot of spam email, but it'll also, they should let you know if there is a security vulnerability found and how to fix it. So I would recommend that you register for these and use an account that you will actually check. And that probably also means whatever this account is, you should regularly check the spam folder because a lot of this stuff will probably, unfortunately, go there. And finally, make sure that your Wi-Fi router is up to date and at least somewhat modern. I'd say any router more than five years old is suspect. You want a modern router that has the ability to have a guest network that has WPA2 at least, if not WPA3 for wireless security. And obviously you want one where you can update the firmware and you got to keep checking unless it has an auto update like mine does. I've got a Synology router that has an auto update feature, which is great. But even so, I check back every month or so just to make sure that it's uh, that it's staying up to date. OK, so anyway, that was a quick overview. Check out my blog article on this or the newsletter article if you're a subscriber and it has more, including how to verify the software hashes of whatever you download and how to check it for viruses if you don't already have an antivirus installed and don't want to install one all the time. So again, firewalls don't stop dragons. It should be the top article right now. Check it out. Okay, so uh, first news article of the day, and this is about Kaspersky Password Manager, or KPM. And here's a short article from Mashable. The Kaspersky Password Manager, or KPM, a free tool used to generate and manage online passwords, has long been a popular alternative to the likes of LastPass or 1Password. Unfortunately, according to security researcher Jean-Baptiste Bedrun, a bad coding decision meant that the passwords it generated weren't truly random and as a result were relatively easy to brute force. The hacking technique using specialized tools to try hundreds of thousands or millions of password combinations in an attempt to guess the right one. Bedrun, who is a security researcher for the cryptocurrency hard wallet company Ledger, writes that while generating a supposedly random password, KPM used the current time as its quote-unquote single source of entropy. And I'll come back to that topic in a minute. While it sounds super technical, it essentially boils down to KPM using the time as the basis for its pseudo-random number generator. Knowing when the password was generated, even approximately, would therefore give a hacker vital information in an attempt to crack a victim's account. And this is a quote from that researcher who says, quote, All the passwords it generated could be brute-forced in seconds, unquote. Bedrun's team submitted the vulnerability to Kaspersky through HackerOne's bug bounty program in June of 2019, and Ledger's blog post says Kaspersky notified potentially effective users in October of 2020. That's quite a bit later. 
When reached for comment, Kaspersky confirmed but downplayed the problem identified by Bedroon. And this is a quote from Kaspersky. It's, uh, they say, quote, This issue was only possible in the unlikely event that the attacker knew the user's account information and the exact time a password had been generated. It would also require the target to lower their password complexity settings, unquote. Now, I didn't quite follow that last part because I would think that they would generate passwords using the same random number generator regardless of the length of the password. But maybe he's basically saying that longer passwords would still make it much harder to brute force even with that knowledge of uh, the bad random number generator. Okay, back to the article. Kaspersky also published a security advisory detailing the flaw in April of 2021. And this alert read in part, quote, Password generator was not completely cryptographically strong and potentially allowed an attacker to predict generated passwords in some cases. An attacker would need to know some additional information, for example, time of password generation, unquote. That alert also noted that going forward, the password manager had fixed the issue, a claim echoed by the spokesperson. And here's a quote from that spokesperson, quote, The company has issued a fix to the product and has incorporated a mechanism that notifies users if a specified password generated by the tool could be vulnerable and needs changing, unquote. So what does this mean for the average KPM user? Well, if you've been using the same KPM-generated passwords for over two years, a habit which would typically be fine, they should create new ones. Other than that, keep using a password manager and enable two-factor authentication. Okay, so when you're doing anything cryptographic, this is a computer algorithm that munges a lot of numbers and does some heavy-duty math. One of the key components for any cryptography stuff is a random number generator. And because computers can't really do random things, though uh, yours and my personal experiences may lead us to believe otherwise, they have to basically fake it. And to do that, they have what's called a pseudo-random number generator. And basically, if you tell this thing to flip a bunch of coins, it will definitely come out a hard 50% if you do, you know, a billion of them. It's really good at getting that right. However, here's the thing. Each one of these random number generators, these pseudo random number generators, have a seed, something that has to get them started. And if you give it the same seed, it will give you the exact set of 1 billion coin flips in a row. Completely predictable. Even though... Overall, it's random because any one of them could be heads or tails with a 50% likelihood. So basically what Kaspersky did, and this is a big, big no-no when you're doing security, they used as the seed for their pseudo-random number generator the current time, like whatever time of day it is right now. So if you knew, as a hacker, if you knew about what time somebody generated a password, that would make it significantly easier for you to try to guess what their generated password was. Now, as the article says, or as the uh, Kaspersky rep says, that's hard to know. (laughs) I mean, how is a hacker supposed to know, A, that you're using Kaspersky Password Manager, B, that you generated a password that was for this website, and C, when you generated that password? Not likely. Now, if they had access to your computer, or if they had some other information about you specifically, you know, maybe they could figure that out. But then the last sentence here of this article is also key. That's why we have defense in depth. That's why we have to give them more hoops to jump through, more locks to undo, to get at the goods. So that's why two-factor authentication is crucial. You should absolutely positively use two-factor authentication on anything that you can, at least anything you care about. All right, next up, this is a really fascinating story. I don't know if this made the news where you were at or not, uh, but it's about some 
rather crafty Brazilian thieves uh, who were getting at people's accounts using their stolen iPhone. This is from Apple Insider. A recent rash of iPhone thefts in Brazil serves as yet another cautionary tale for users who store passwords in an unsecured location on their device. In June, reports surfaced about a string of Brazilian iPhone thefts that dates back to 2020. Instead of flipping the hardware for cash, thieves sought a more lucrative payout by using the devices to gain unauthorized access to the victim's bank accounts. Exactly how the locked phones were breached and bank accounts accessed remained unknown until Sao Paulo authorities arrested members of a gang that specialized in the technique. Unlike government data-gathering operations or sophisticated hacks that require expensive equipment and obscure software exploits, all that was needed was a SIM card removal tool. Criminals take the SIM out of the victim's iPhone, place it in an unlocked device, and search for linked accounts on social media networks like Facebook or Instagram. Once an account connected to the phone line is found, the intruder searches for an associated email address, which, according to one suspect, is usually also paired to a user's Apple ID. Using the email account and phone number, the thieves reset the Apple ID password on the unlocked phone, download system backup information from iCloud, and conduct a search for quote-unquote password, presumably through Spotlight. In many cases, victims store passwords, account numbers, and other important information in plain text, according to the suspect. With the information in hand, the SIM card is swapped back to the original iPhone. Another gang member responsible for accessing bank accounts takes charge of the device and uses it to siphon off money. Apple does include certain security features that can mitigate portions of the attack, including two-factor authentication and a remote data wipe in lost mode. Indeed, the company in a statement last month promised to make data erasure features quote-unquote easier to access. Still, the security safeguards are only effective if they are enabled prior to theft. In this case, and as a general rule, it's never safe to store passwords locally in an unsecured location. And by locally, they mean on the phone, like in a note or in your address book. For those who deal with multiple passwords or strong randomized passcodes that are difficult to memorize, which should be everybody, investing in a password manager or Apple's own keychain are viable options. So yeah, upshot here, do not store your passwords in a, just a regular old unencrypted file. That includes on your computer, by the way. Use a password manager. So the other thing I thought was interesting here was, and I didn't really call this out in the article, I, maybe I read this in a different article, where the reason they that bikers are stealing these things, I think, at least someone was telling me, that they're trying to catch people actually using their phone. So their phone is unlocked, it's in their hand, or they're making maybe they're making a phone call, and it's held up to their held up to their ear. And so they drive by and try to grab it from you while it's still unlocked, basically. And if they could get it while it's unlocked, meaning they don't need your finger or your pin, they can often find ways to keep it from locking. Like sometimes if you bring up the camera app or some, or play a YouTube video or do something that will keep it uh, from going to sleep, they can keep it unlocked until they can get it back somewhere and then do something with it. Now, this article doesn't mention that at all. So maybe I read this in a different article uh, about this, these same thieves, because it sounds like they were able to get into them regardless by taking the SIM card out and putting it in an unlocked iPhone and going that route. But then they use that to download, you know, backup files from iCloud. Uh, and then supposedly, I guess at that point, if they have a phone in their control that can read from iCloud, then anything in iCloud is something it could read, including documents or notes or whatever. And then they just search for password. So again, bottom line, don't store passwords in any kind of an unencrypted format. 
if you use a password manager, they will be encrypted. And uh, to get into those apps, you should make sure that you've got some sort of a pin or face ID or fingerprint ID or something to even access the app. And again, use two-factor authentication. But this, this particular case calls out why I always tell you to use an authenticator app, one of the ones that generates a six-digit pin that expires every 30 seconds, as opposed to using SMS. Because in this case, if they've cloned your SIM, if they actually have your phone in their hand, all they need to do is get that text message with the pin code. So that wouldn't have helped in this case. That is why you don't want to be using SMS-based two-factor authentication if you can help it. It's still better than nothing. But this is a prime example of where that falls short. All right, moving on. Google has pushed its Flock deployment out and its blocking of third-party cookies as well until 2023. Uh, and this article has some really interesting thoughts about why that might be. This is from Inc.com. Google is in an interesting position when it comes to making the internet respect your privacy. It controls the world's largest advertising platform, the most used search engine, and the most popular web browser. Together, that means Google has more influence over how your data is gathered and tracked online than any other company. Something that I have said many times on this show. It's significant, then, that over the past few years, Google has joined the effort to eliminate the worst offender when it comes to tracking, third-party cookies. Those are the little bits of code websites use websites used to track your activity across other sites and apps. Cookies in and of themselves aren't necessarily bad. They serve valuable purposes like keeping you logged in to sites you use regularly. It's just that they are also used for purposes that were never intended, like tracking everything you do online. And by the way, that difference is first-party versus third-party cookies. When you log into a website and you want it to remember you, that's a first-party cookie. That's fine. When all the advertisements on that page also drop cookies on you to track you when you go to another website, that's third-party cookie tracking. That's bad. All right, on with the article. In 2020, Google announced that Chrome would block third-party cookies by default, something almost every other browser already does. Since that time, Google has been trying to figure out an alternative that will still allow advertisers to target users without invading their privacy. Google's solution, known as Flock, F-L-O-C, analyzes web activity in Chrome and assigns the user to a cohort. Advertisers can then target ads at those groups as opposed to individual users. Google argues that the method is privacy protecting since individual users can't be identified. And that's a strong claim. In theory, that sounds great, right? Except basically no one else thinks it's a good idea. The Electronic Frontier Foundation, for example, calls it quote unquote, a terrible idea. Advertisers aren't fans either. Amazon has said that it will block Flock from working on any of its sites. That explains why last week, Google said it would delay the rollout of Flock and the blocking of third-party cookies until 2023. Look, there's no question that Google, should it decide to, could make the internet respect your privacy. It could simply turn off third-party cookies in Chrome, just flip a switch and make them go away for good. The cynical take is that Google is dragging this out because it's addicted to your data and wants to protect its business. The truth, however, is that's only partially true. In fact, I think you can make the case that the truth is actually worse. Google doesn't even need that data. While Google could technically make the internet respect your privacy, the problem is that doing so would give it an enormous advantage over every other advertising network and platform. Google collects massive amounts of first-party data on its users, meaning that it's far less dependent on third-party tracking. Besides, Google's most profitable advertising platform is Search. Google doesn't have to do any third-party tracking to know what you search for since you literally type what you're looking for into its website. All it has to do is show you ads at the top of the search engine results page. Blocking third-party tracking altogether would certainly affect Google's business, 
but would have a far greater impact on the rest of the digital advertising industry. As a result, Google is in an almost impossible situation, but not for the reason it might seem. Eliminating third-party cookies seems like the best possible outcome for Google because it would force advertisers to become even more dependent on Google. In the long run, it would give Google even more control over digital advertising, which you might think would be a good thing for the company. Except, considering the antitrust pressure Google is facing, the last thing it wants to do is anything that makes it look like the company is becoming more dominant. Google can't cut off the rest of the industry, not because it's being charitable, but because to do so would put its entire business at risk. If you think Google is facing scrutiny now, imagine what would happen if it became even more dominant. It's hard to see a scenario where it wouldn't be broken apart by regulators, which might be better for your privacy, but would definitely be bad for Google. Once again, when faced with a decision between protecting user privacy and protecting its own business, Google has chosen the latter. Now, I'm actually, I, well, I totally agree with, with that statement, but in a way, I, you know, I don't really hold Google responsible for that. It's a public company and they have a fiduciary responsibility to make as much money as humanly possible. That is why we have regulations. That's why we have the government. Again, any game worth playing has rules. And any game with sufficient consequences must have an independent referee to enforce those rules. That is how capitalism is supposed to work. So anyway, my point is that Google is doing this to make money, and we can't fault them for doing that because the laws in the United States allow them to do just that. All right, <laughs> let me get off my soapbox and move on. Here's a rather disturbing article from the Associated Press. Federal law enforcement agencies secretly seek the data of Microsoft customers thousands of times a year, according to congressional testimony Wednesday by a senior executive at the technology company. Tom Burt, Microsoft's corporate vice president for customer security and trust, told members of the House Judiciary Committee that federal law enforcement in recent years has been presenting the company with between 2,400 and 3,500 secrecy orders a year, or about 7 to 10 per day. And this is a quote from, uh, from Bert. He says, quote, Most shocking is just how routine security orders have become when law enforcement targets an American's email, text messages, or other sensitive data stored in the cloud. The relationship between law enforcement and big tech has attracted fresh scrutiny in recent weeks with the revelation that Trump-era Justice Department prosecutors obtained as part of leak investigations phone records belonging not only to journalists but also to members of Congress and their staffers. Microsoft, for instance, was among the companies that turned over records under a court order and because of a gag order, had to then wait more than two years before disclosing it. Burt said that while the revelation that federal prosecutors had sought data about journalists and political figures was shocking to many Americans, the scope of surveillance is much broader. He criticized prosecutors for reflexively seeking secrecy through boilerplate requests that, quote, enable law enforcement to just simply assert a conclusion that a secrecy order is necessary, unquote. Bird says that while Microsoft Corp. does cooperate with law enforcement on a broad range of criminal and national security investigations, it often challenges surveillance that it sees as unnecessary, resulting at times in advance notice to accounts being targeted. Among the organizations weighing in at the hearing was the Associated Press, which called on Congress to act to protect journalists' ability to promise confidentiality to their sources. Reporters must have prior notice and the ability to challenge a prosecutor's efforts to seize data, said a statement submitted by Karen Kaiser, AP's general counsel. And this is a quote from Kaiser. She says, It is essential that reporters be able to credibly promise confidentiality to ensure the public has the information needed to hold its government accountable and to help government agencies and officials function more effectively and with integrity, unquote. As possible solutions, Burt said, the government should end indefinite secrecy orders, 
and should also be required to notify the target of the data demand once the secrecy order has expired. Just this week, he said, prosecutors sought a blanket gag order affecting the government of a major U.S. city for a Microsoft data request targeting a single employee there. And one more quote from Bird. He says, quote, without reform, abuses will continue to occur and they will occur in the dark, unquote. All right. So this is, you know, the classic trade-off between what law enforcement agencies and intelligence agencies need to know to do their jobs and the privacy rights of people. And when you start talking about, you know, confidential informants and things like that and whistleblowers, we need to strike the right balance. And we are currently not doing that. It's just shocking to me. This is Microsoft only, by the way, uh, these 2,435 requests a year. That's just for Microsoft. I'm sure that Apple and Google and Facebook and many of the other places that hold lots of our juicy info get requests like this all the time as well. And with gag orders, they're not allowed to talk about it. Transparency is going to be key here. All right, next up, another disturbing report. This one, hopefully, mostly in the past. And let me read this article from uh, Vice uh, slash Motherboard. A weakness in the algorithm used to encrypt cell phone data in the 1990s and 2000s allowed hackers to spy on some internet traffic, according to a new research paper. The paper has sent shockwaves through the encryption community because of what it implies. The researchers believe that the mathematical probability of the weakness being introduced on accident is extremely low. Thus, they speculate that a weakness was intentionally put into the algorithm. After the paper was published, the group that designed the algorithm confirmed this was the case. Researchers from several universities in Europe found that the encryption algorithm GEA1, which was used in cell phones when the industry adopted GPRS standards in 2G networks, was intentionally designed to include a weakness that at least one cryptography expert sees as a back door. The researchers said that they obtained two encryption algorithms, GEA1 and GEA2, which are proprietary and thus not public, quote-unquote, from a source. They then analyzed them and realized that they were vulnerable to attacks that allowed the decryption of all traffic. When trying to reverse engineer the algorithm, the engineers wrote that to simplify, they tried to design a similar encryption algorithm using a random number generator often used in cryptography and never came close to creating an encryption scheme as weak as the one actually used. And this is the quote from the researchers, they say, In a million tries, we never even got close to such a weak instance. This implies that the weakness in GEA1 is unlikely to occur by chance, indicating that the security level of 40 bits is due to export regulations, unquote. And I'll circle back to that in a minute. Researchers dubbed the attack divide and conquer and said it was rather straightforward. In short, the attack allows someone who can intercept cell phone data traffic to recover the key used to encrypt the data and decrypt all the traffic. The weakness in GEA1, the oldest algorithm developed in 1998, is that it provides only 40-bit security. That's what allows an attacker to get the key and to decrypt all traffic, according to the researchers. A spokesperson for the organization that designed the GEA-1 algorithm, the European Telecommunications Standards Institute, or ETSI, admitted that the algorithm contained a weakness and said it was introduced because the export regulations at the time did not allow for stronger encryption. And this is a quote from that spokesperson, quote, We followed regulations. We followed export control regulations that limited the strength of the GEA-1, unquote. Havard Rodham, one of the researchers who worked on the paper, summed up the implications of this decision in an email to Motherboard. Quote, to meet political requirements, millions of users were apparently poorly protected while surfing for years, unquote. Rodham and his colleagues found that GEA1's successor, GEA2, did not contain the same weakness. And I'm going to butcher this next name, Lukas Oleknik. 
an independent cybersecurity researcher and consultant who holds a computer science PhD from the INRIA, whatever that is, told Motherboard that, quote, this technical analysis this technical analysis is sound, and the conclusions as to the intentional weakening of the algorithm rather serious, unquote. The good news is that GEA1 and GEA2 are not widely used anymore after cell phone providers adopted new standards for the 3G and 4G networks. The bad news is that even though Etsy prohibited network operators from using GEA1 in 2013, the researchers say that both GEA1 and GEA2 persist to this day because GPRS is still used as a fallback in certain countries and networks. And this is a quote from Rodham again. He says, quote, In most countries, the risk is not very high and significantly a lower risk than at the start of the 2000s, since GEA3 and GEA4 are used today. But handsets still support GEA1. Scenarios where a mobile phone today could be tricked into using GEA1 exist, unquote. In fact, the researchers tested several modern phones to see if they still support the vulnerable algorithms and surprisingly found that they still do. The researchers said that it's the baseband manufacturers who are responsible for implementing standards. And this is a quote from the researchers. They said, quote, The use of GEA1 has still far-reaching consequences on the user's privacy and should be avoided at all costs, unquote. All right, so there's several things there I want to circle back to. So first of all, the article mentioned a couple times about uh, this weakened algorithm having only 40 bits of encryption strength. And how you determine that is a long mathematical thing. But basically, the more bits, the better. And back in the 90s, back in the time when Phil Zimmerman created PGP with much higher encryption capability, encryption was viewed by law enforcement and intelligence agencies in the United States and basically by the U.S. government to be too hard to break if, it, if, if, if done well, in other words, if done with enough bits. And so they artificially limited all export of any encryption technology from the United States to be no stronger than 40-bit encryption. So basically what it sounds like is that that is what happened here, is that these encryption algorithms, GEA1 in particular, was capable of much better encryption, but was purposefully hampered to be no better than 40-bit. And because of that, and the reason the government's, you know, the U.S. government picked 40 bits is because they could crack it. They had computers that could crack 40-bit encryption easily. And, of course, that was in the 90s. Today, your smartphone could probably crack 40-bit encryption easily. So this was just another case where the government got involved because they wanted to be able to crack this. They basically made it so that anybody could crack it. Again, there's no such thing as a backdoor that only good guys can go through. The other thing I want to bring up uh, is... <laughs> These algorithms were proprietary. No security algorithm that you ever have a choice to pick and use should be proprietary. That's the whole point. Security algorithms are public. How these algorithms work must be public so that researchers, security people who know what the hell they're doing, independent people who don't have a vested interest in these things being used, can look at them, beat them up, vet them, and come back and say, okay, we can't break it. That looks okay. And again, this is like 30-year-old technology or 25-year-old technology still proprietary, still closed source, still, still secret. So they had to find some source that would get them the, uh, the algorithm so they could study it. And when they did, lo and behold, they found that it had bugs. That's why we make them public. All right, lastly, we talked about this whole notion of a downgrade attack uh, on a previous show where we talked about people, you know, protesters being spied on or other people being spied on through their cell phones, through cell site simulators. And these cell site simulators pretended to be old cell sites that only supported the older, weaker encryption standards. 
And if they could get your phone to connect to it and get your phone to agree to go to the lowest common denominator, this really old, crappy, unsecure encryption technique, and get you to talk on the phone or send a text message or whatever, they could crack that data and use that to track you and who knows what else. This is a similar kind of a thing. So really the problem here from a technology standpoint is that these baseband radios should not support these older things. Or if they did, they should somehow alert you and say, hey, the only thing I've got going on right now is this unsecure connection. Do you really want to use that? And if so, for how long? And so forth. So currently, for example, in an iPhone, Apple does not make the baseband radio. Your phone, believe it or not, has almost two completely different computer systems built into it. The one that Apple made and the one that handles the cellular radio, the so-called baseband chip. Qualcomm makes a lot of those, for example. And so I, I think that's why it's been heavily rumored that Apple is trying to build their own baseband chip. And I cannot wait for that day. But that's where we are currently. So just FYI. All right. So now we need to circle back to a couple things I covered last week, but there have been updates uh, since then that I definitely need to talk about. First, let's talk about this Microsoft print nightmare uh, bug. And this article from Naked Security sums it up pretty well. So uh, let me read from there. Here's the good news. Microsoft has released an emergency patch for the infamous print nightmare bug that was revealed in the Windows print spooler just over a week ago. The patch is what Redmond refers to as an OOB security update, where OOB is short for out of band. OOB is a jargon term that refers to communications that are kept separate from the usual channel you use, notably for safety reasons in case the main channel should fail or need overriding in an emergency. In Windows Update parlance, OOB refers to patches that are deemed so important that they can't wait until the next official Patch Tuesday, which is always the second Tuesday in each calendar month. This month, that's uh, July 13th, which is almost a week away, which when this was written it was, it's actually tomorrow for most of you. Here's the bad news. Early reports suggest that the patch doesn't protect against all the aspects of the print nightmare bug, and that it may be possible to bypass the patch entirely, depending on the version of Windows installed and the print spooler configuration on the targeted computer. So in case you missed it, print nightmare is an aptly named bug that became a public danger for the unfortunate reason that a team of security researchers jumped to an incorrect conclusion. Briefly put, Microsoft published a Windows print spooler patch for a bug dubbed CVE-2021, and that's the year, 1675, and that's the number. As part of the June 21 Patch Tuesday update that came out on June 8th. Originally, the bug was reported as an elevation of privilege vulnerability, meaning that although attackers already on your computer could exploit the bug to promote themselves from a regular user to a system account, they couldn't use it to break into your computer in the first place. In the meantime, Chinese researchers preparing a paper for the 2021 Black Hat Conference were working on their own bug in the Windows print spooler. And Black Hat is the other huge, more corporate hacking conference on the planet, and it takes place also in Las Vegas, also in August. They almost overlap. Anyway, theirs sounded very similar, except that it was an RCE bug, short for Remote Code Execution meaning that it could be used for breaking in, not merely for elevating privilege. Given that the Chinese researchers' bug was apparently different, they hadn't disclosed it yet. Later in the month, however, Microsoft admitted that CVE 2021-1675 could also be used for RCE and updated its public advisory to say so. Even though that meant the bug was more serious in theory, no one worried too much in practice, 
After all, a patch was already available, and anyone who had installed the patch to close the elevation of privilege hole was ipso facto protected against the newly announced remote code execution hole as well. At this point, the researchers then apparently assumed that their bug was not original as they had first thought. Because it was already patched, they assumed that it would therefore not be untimely to publish their existing proof-of-concept exploit code to explain how the vulnerability worked. And <laughs> this is Naked Security <laughs> guessing at what the, uh, they may, these uh, researchers may have asked themselves. This is a theoretical quote. What's the chance that two different RCE bugs, and again, that's remote code execution, working in what sounds like exactly the same way would be found at exactly the same time in exactly the same Windows component, namely the print spooler, unquote. And again, they didn't actually say that. This is naked security speculating. With hindsight, which is a wonderful thing indeed, we can compute that chance precisely, 100%. Their bug was not CVE 2021-1675 at all. It was CVE 2021-34527, although no one knew that at the time because that additional bug number was only issued later on. Even worse, this new RCE hole wasn't blocked by Microsoft's Patch Tuesday update, making the published code into a publicly available, fully functional break-and-enter exploit. In the jargon of the cybersecurity industry, the researchers had unwittingly dropped a zero day. Zero day is the jargon for a previously unknown and unpatched security hole because it means that the good guys were zero days ahead when the bad guys first got to hear about it. The researchers removed the zero day code from the internet pretty quickly, but not quickly enough. As Pandora found when she opened her proverbial jar, there's no point in trying to put secrets back in the box once they've escaped. The print nightmare exploit code had already been copied and republished in many places, and almost every known version of Windows was at risk. Most notably, even domain controllers generally have the print spooler running by default, so that the print nightmare exploit code theoretically gives anyone who already has a foothold inside your network a way to take over the very computer that acts as your network's security HQ. Fortunately, there is a two-minute workaround for any and all Windows systems. Turn off the print spooler and set it into disabled mode so that it can't start up again either by accident or by design, or restart. No print spooler, no attack surface. No attack surface, no security hole. No security hole, no break and enter point. Unfortunately, without the print spooler running, you can't print. So anyone who needed a working print server somewhere on their network working was on the horns of a dilemma. Leave the spooler running only on carefully selected servers and watch them really carefully, or continually re-enable, print, disable the spooler every time output was required. Okay, this article goes on. But yeah, this is what, this is a solution we talked about last week. Basically, it's still, as of this recording, which was Saturday, not fixed, not fully fixed. So you should find and apply that Windows patch, and there's a link on the show notes. Uh, and if you look at this article, you can find it in there as well. So you can get the out-of-band update that fixes it. Maybe the Patch Tuesday security update that's going to come out tomorrow will fix this completely. I can certainly hope so, but it may not. If you go to the uh, the website for Microsoft, I think it's uh, it'll update itself, uh, and you can keep an eye there to see if there's a final patch. All right, so let's let's talk about some mitigating factors here, at least for most of you listeners that are probably just home users. This still requires that somebody have remote access to your device, to your Windows box running this print spooler, which means they would need to get through your firewall. Or 
your firewall will need to be compromised or some device in your network is already compromised and it's smart enough to look around to other devices on your network for this vulnerability, which frankly is a lot easier than it might sound. But your real defense here is that your computers with this vulnerability are almost surely not directly on the broader internet. They are on your home network, which is connected to your Wi-Fi router, probably. And that Wi-Fi router has a firewall in it that is protecting every device in your home network from random requests to your devices inside your home network. But this brings up a couple other quick points I'm going to make. Uh, first of all, things like a domain controller, which you're not likely as a regular human being uh, in your house to be running, but businesses will often have these. <laughs> domain controllers do not need print spoolers, or they better not. And generally speaking, we really need to look at all the things that are started up automatically with our computers, particularly on Windows PCs because they often come with a lot of crap where you don't need. And every one of those things, every one of those services that's automatically running when you start your computer, first of all, it slows everything down. But second, it's just one more vulnerable thing. The other thing you should probably do is make sure that your router firewall is actually working properly. Uh, if you go to uh, grc.com and look for Shields Up, or actually if you just search for Shields Up, all one word, uh, with an exclamation mark, you'll find uh, Steve Gibson's great little tool for basically probing your home network from outside. And it will run either a, a partial scan of the most common internet ports that are likely to be attacked, you know, like, like SSH and Telnet and UPnP and some of these other ones. Uh, you could actually do a complete scan, which will look at all possible ports, which there's a lot of them, and it will take some time. Uh, and it will give you a report back saying if you've got any ports that are open. And what you should get back on that report is that they're either closed ports, meaning that your router firewall got the request and said no, or they're stealth ports, which means your router got the request and just didn't even respond, which honestly is the best thing to do. What it also may mean, by the way, is your ISP, your internet service provider, uh, may be blocking some of those requests too. It's got, I guess, kind of its own built-in firewall. So what you're really seeing is the conglomeration of what your ISP is doing and what your router is doing, which is what you mostly care about. Now, the other thing is... Um, you know, as I find things like this, I tend to post them like, you know, patch right away. There's a big bug. Go get this fixed right away. Uh, I post that mostly on Twitter. So my handle on Twitter is at Firewall Dragons. If you really want to get the latest and greatest up to date, that is probably the best way to get it from me. If it's really big, I usually post it on Facebook as well. But Twitter is where I have the most followers currently. Uh, and that's generally where I post that stuff. Okay, one more story. And again, this one is from last week as well. Uh, and this is about the Casilla ransomware attack. So let me read this article from Ars Technica. And some of this, I'm sure, will cover things I already covered last week, but there are updates buried in here. So um, uh, let me just read. As many as 1,500 businesses around the world have been infected by highly destructive malware that first struck software maker Casilla. In one of the worst ransom attacks ever, the malware, in turn, used that access to fell Casilla's customers. The attack struck on Friday afternoon in the lead-up to the three-day Independence Day holiday weekend in the U.S. Hackers affiliated with Revil, or R-Evil, one of ransomware's most cutthroat gangs, exploited a zero-day vulnerability in the Casilla VSA remote management service, which the company says is used by 35,000 customers. The Revil affiliates then used their control of Casilla's infrastructure to push a malicious software update to customers who are primarily small to mid-sized businesses. 
In a statement posted on Monday, Casilla said that roughly 50 of its customers were compromised. From there, the company said 80 to 1,500 businesses that are managed by Casilla's customers were infected. Revil's site on the dark web claimed that more than 1 million targets were infected in the attack and that the group was demanding $70 million for a universal decryptor. The mass attack has cascading effects around the world. Swedish supermarket chain Coop on Tuesday was still trying to recover after it shut about half of its 800 stores because point-of-sale tills and service checkouts stopped working. Schools and kindergartens in New Zealand were also affected, as were some public administration offices in Romania. Germany's cybersecurity watchdog BSI said on Tuesday that it was aware of three IT service providers in Germany that had been affected. Casilla has said that all attacks it has discovered to date targeted its on-premises product. And this is a quote from the company's advisory. It says, quote, All on-premises VSA servers should continue to remain offline until further instructions from Casilla about when it's safe to restore operations. A patch will be required to be installed prior to restarting the VSA and set of recommendations on how to increase your security posture, unquote. The company has said that it's found no evidence that any of its cloud customers were compromised. The Revil affiliates exploited a zero-day vulnerability that Casilla was days away from patching when the attack hit. CVE-2021-30116, as the vulnerability was tracked, was discovered by researchers from the Dutch Institute of Vulnerability Disclosure, which says its researchers had privately reported the security flaw and was monitoring Casilla's progress in patching it. And then one of these reps said, Casilla showed a genuine commitment to do the right thing. Unfortunately, we were beaten by Revil in the final sprint as they could exploit the vulnerabilities before customers could even patch, unquote. The event is the latest example of a supply chain attack in which hackers infect the provider of a widely used product or service with the goal of compromising downstream customers who use it. In this case, the hackers infected Casilla customers and then used that access to infect the businesses that received service from Casilla. Anyone who suspects their network has been affected in any way in this attack should investigate immediately. Casilla has published a tool that VSA customers can use to detect infections in their network. The FBI and the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, have jointly issued recommendations for Casilla customers, particularly if they have been compromised. All right, and that last paragraph had links embedded in them to that tool from Casilla and to the jointly issued set of recommendations from the FBI and CISA. So if you are a business and you have any reason to believe that you may have been compromised, please look up this article in the show notes and check out the tool and check out the recommendations. So what are we really supposed to do about this? That leads me to the tip of the week. Let me give you some tips on how to avoid being a victim of ransomware. First of all, prevention is key. Focus on prevention. Once you've already been infected with malware in some way, shape, or form, your options get a lot worse. So the key is to not get infected in the first place. But I will talk about some things you can do, some last line of defense things you can do uh, in the case that you're computer is compromised. But let's start with some prevention stuff first. First of all, network protections are extremely important. That starts with your Wi-Fi router. That is the gateway to your entire home network. It's the bouncer for your house. They're keeping the riffraff out and they're looking for trouble inside. So make sure that you lock down your Wi-Fi router. That means change the admin password from whatever the default was. Make sure you set it to something good, something random, something unique. Poke around in the admin site for your router uh, and turn off any external admin functions. There's no need for you to configure or administer your Wi-Fi router from outside your home. Make sure the software is up to date. 
and actually here's a weird one, but reboot your home router every so often. First of all, it'll probably improve the performance. Sometimes it doesn't do a good job of cleaning up after itself and gets kind of clunky. But also I've seen a lot of Wi-Fi router exploits that only stay in memory, meaning that they're not stored anywhere in, on, on its hard drive, basically. So that if you just reboot it, they go away. Also, make sure that the firewall is on. It almost surely is on by default on your router, but you may or may not know that your computers also have built-in software firewalls, and those are good things to turn on. That would help the case where something else in your home network has been compromised and is now probing everything else on your home network. And so now you need that next layer of protection around your computer itself. So make sure that the software firewall built into your Mac or your PC is enabled. Now, some people have asked me before whether uh, having hard drive encryption will help prevent ransomware. And the answer there is no. There is nothing preventing any file from being encrypted twice or three times or a million times. So if there is software running on your computer right now, if you've been infected by malware, if it's running as you, then it should have access to anything you have access to. So in that case, most of those files are unencrypted to the malware because they're unencrypted to you. So again, basically you just want to follow good internet hygiene. Don't open any files or links that you didn't expect or ask for and know how to safely download software from the internet. And for that, I'm going to point you to my recent blog post. And again, if you're a newsletter subscriber, you already have this in your inbox right now. Now, if you're a business, there are some other things you can do. And this is a really good article from ThreatPost. I'm just going to read tip number one that they give because it's a good one. It's a good starter. And then you should go read the article uh, if you want the rest. Uh, Their tip number one for businesses is have a plan. Let us start easy. Have a plan. If you have not suffered a ransomware attack, congrats. You now have time on your side, hopefully. Use that to get a plan in place, even if you do not have a security team. Start with this simple question. If you got hit by an attack right now, how would you respond? Start to fill in each gap you identify, whether it's how you would detect the incident, how you would reach out to counsel, or how you would return data to normal operations. When you plan, assume data loss and see if that impacts how you respond. So yeah, first step in any of these things is to have a plan. Don't put it off. Um, It's getting really bad out there. Um, So again, that was from ThreatPost. And I've got a link in the show notes that will take you to this article with uh, the rest of their tips uh, for businesses on how to plan and prepare for possible ransomware attacks. But what I would like to do for the tip of the week is give you some specific things you can do to prevent your files from being encrypted. Now, this is a true last line of defense. This basically means your PC or your Mac is compromised. There's already malware running on your machine. That's bad. But you can, uh, both Windows and Mac OS, come with built-in file and folder protections that would allow you to at least be notified when something is trying to access your most important files. So on a Mac, this is already turned on by default. Uh, And in fact, if you've got a recent Mac, you've certainly seen these pop-ups saying, you know, so-and-so app would like to access your downloads folder or your desktop or your documents folder. That is the Mac OS working for you, making sure that on an individual app basis, you have authorized certain applications to get to those files. So conversely, what that should mean is that if malware is trying to access them, they should run into that same problem and either not be able to access them or pop up a thing saying, hey, I want to get to your files, and you would have to be careless enough to just say okay and let them do it. So when those pop-ups come, look at them carefully. Don't just blindly say okay. 
Now, Windows 10 has a similar protection built in, and they call it controlled folder access, but I don't believe it's on by default. I think you have to uh, turn this on uh, yourself. So to do this, just go to your um, the little search bar for your the Windows search bar at the bottom and search for ransomware protection. And then it should bring up this controlled folder access uh, thing. But if not, you can go to, and this is kind of long, but if you go to Start, Settings, Update and Security, Windows Security, Virus and Threat Protection, Virus and Threat Protection Settings, Manage Settings, Controlled Folder Access, Manage Controlled Folder Access, Protected Folders, Add a Folder. <laughs> That's ridiculous. That's why searching uh, is definitely easier to find that. But I would definitely, you know, all your document folders, your desktop, your documents, which probably includes your desktop, you know, any other files you want to protect, make sure that those folders are added. And then, yeah, you're going to get some pop-ups, some annoying pop-ups saying, hey, I want to get at those folders. You don't let me, you're going to let me have access? And you're going to have to go through once for each of those applications and say yes or no. Now, if you're a Mac person, there's another really interesting thing I want to throw out at you. And this uh, is a really cool app called Ransomware, spelled W-H-E-R-E. And it's from Patrick Wardle, friend of the show, uh, who runs a site called ObjectiveC.com. That's Objective-SEE.com. And he's got tons of really great security tools, all free on his website. And this one is a really cool one. So if you run this one, basically what it does is it kind of sits in the background and it's looking to see if there's some weird application, some unexpected application, suddenly trying to encrypt a bunch of your files. And I think it'll actually stop the program and then and, and notify you. So that's a cool tool. I actually wish that was built into the Mac OS and Windows. Uh, it should be. He's got a lot of other really cool tools there too. Check them out. Uh, Patrick's a great guy. I'm actually hoping to meet him in person next week. Uh, my family and I are going to Hawaii for the first time for all of us. And that's where he resides. And he's actually going to be on Maui where I'm going to be. So I'm hoping to have a go have a drink with Patrick. He's a great guy. So there you have it, folks. There's the news and your tip of the week. All right, I promised actually one more bonus tip, and I'll give that to you now. With hurricane season now upon us, and with our first named hurricane, I think, uh, Elsa, just coming, coming through, there's going to be more and more chances for power outages. Of course, this could happen in the winter as well. But I put together a really nice, comprehensive blog post on how to prepare for a power outage. And it's not a full-blown, you know, how to prepare for storms in general, like, you know, boiling water, first aid kits, and that kind of stuff. This is really specifically around making sure that you've got power to your most important devices, particularly your phone. Uh, and a lot of, you, you wouldn't think it'd be that complicated, but I came up with a really long list that I think is really quite good. So check that out. Go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com and search for power outage and you'll find the article. Of course, it's also in the show notes. But basically, it tells you how to protect your devices from electrical surges. Also tells you how to make sure you've got maximum battery capacity for, to run things when you do lose power. And even hopefully allows you to stay connected to the internet at home by making sure that like your Wi-Fi router is on a battery backup. So check that article out. It's good to do it before you need it because everybody and their brother will be out there trying to buy it too when, the, when that happens. All right, again, uh, if you, follow me on Twitter if you want to get the latest hot tips, like, you know, here's a bug you got to go patch right away. If you can't, you know, some of these things you don't want to be waiting a week on like this print nightmare one. So if you want to follow me on Twitter, at Firewall Dragons, uh, that's where I try to post that kind of stuff. Also, you can follow me on Facebook as well. Uh, I usually try to post them there too. 
All right, we've got an interview show next week. Uh, because I'll be out of town, it's actually already in the can. It's already scheduled to go. That will be dropping next Monday morning, as usual. And we'll be talking with Alan Friedman, who's working with a small government group on software bill of materials. And it's really cool. Definitely don't want to miss that. It's amazing how impactful this would be if we could get that done. And then news show after that. And then after that, DEF CON. So lots of fun things coming up. I've got other great interviews working in the background. I'll announce more of those as, the, as they get closer and they get real. And in the meantime, everybody have a good July. Try to stay cool out there in the West. Fingers crossed that forest fires don't get too out of hand. The Delta variant's going around, folks. Got to get those vaccines. Got to make sure others get them too. Part of the reason that the Delta variant was able to propagate is that we didn't get everybody vaccinated quick enough. So please, 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 please get vaccinated. Help others get vaccinated as well. And that'll do it. Take care, everybody. Stay safe. And until next week, don't get caught with your drummers down.